Hello, and welcome to the Vatacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 159th episode of the Nauticast titled Pirates and Prophets, an analysis of a Storm of Swords Davos 2 in which Davos tries to pull off an assassination while sick with pneumonia. Like, really, Davos, take a sick day once in a while? Come on, man. You don't have to work hard every day of your life. Uh, How many sick days do you think Stannis offers? What's your guess there? I'm going to go with between zero and none. Maybe maybe like a I, week I, for every decade of service. I, I would say, yeah, I think that's I think it's fair, right? I think that's how most <laughs> workers like to be treated. You know, one that's sick day fair. for every decade. More uh, would, he, just only be, working... would just be pandering to them. They don't want that. No, no, no. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Command of the King's Guard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Filth the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Heal of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem That Was Promised, Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king, Lady Zena Valeria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Worthy East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Source Delica, Sugar Tit Stent, the Trogdolite Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Query Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Sharon, Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, and the Nauticast, Non-Binary, Not an Army. Haldover, the way for Haldover, the way for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first for name, Princess Dragonstone, Bishop Svart, the Award, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portia of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blader Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress, Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard, Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Hapson, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Ola, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Day, and Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat, Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian the Bone Way. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt as Future Matt as the one who bank balance to the kingdoms. Lord Samuel Seaworth. Lord Kyle. Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrens of the South, and a patron of free, wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer of the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the king's justice, war of the king's word, and the sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kell is contractor in charge of a... Contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table, Lord Travis Mat- Mentat, Master of Ships and Third Stage Guild Navigator. 
Lord Anonymous for the second. Lord Tyler, the prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter. Lord DB, Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper. Lord Monsef, and the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Thank you to all of our not a small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Delhi Devos, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Snark Knight, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Wanted to throw Jeff a bone this time. Very nice. Are there any battles in the Song of Ice and Fire canon that are clearly inspired by historical battles that plebs like us, like us might not realize? The 3000 of Cohor calls up images of the legend of the 300 Spartans. Stephen Atwell called out similarities between the Battle of Castle Black and the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Is there anything else that George looted from history? Bonus points if it's American. So, Jeff, how about that? What a... Tell us, tell us, uneducated folks, all about um, where uh, where uh, uh, George is drawing from with some of these battles. I, I think George draws from a variety of, of sources. Um, you know, we're going to talk about this. There's there's a small part of this chapter where I'm going to George borrow. I think George, George is borrowing from another part of history. Like he borrowed last week from you know Greek history in terms of the 300 um, Spartans, which was not 300 Spartans. God, I'm sorry. It's but I mean that's that's what's popularly known as is, is the 300 Spartans. Uh, but there were but there were a bunch of other Greeks there at the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, he borrows from Roman history, borrows from Greek history, he borrows from modern Age of Sails. We're going to talk about this week. But in terms of like his battles, like George is kind of all over the place. I, I think there's a lot of medievals type battles that he borrows from. I think we could see elements of Cressy and Agincourt. In his development of of people like the Golden Company and the long bows that had the golden heart bows, we see the Golden Company wielding. I think that's that's something that reminds you of the U bows that are that are wielded by uh, by English um, longbowmen from the um, from the late medieval period, uh, early Renaissance period. I think also too, George tends to borrow bits and pieces of different things to kind of like create this uh this this world the 3000 of cohort is sort of borrowed from the spartans but not exactly in totality borrowed from the spartans because they're not really arrayed the, the same way as the spartans are they don't have the same type of armor or, or anything like that they have a distinct armor pattern there and, and again like we talked about last week with the battle of cohort it, it Thermopylae is a little different in that it took place in a narrow pass that was there in order to block the Persian movement into interior Greece, whereas the Battle of Cohor took place, of course, in the um, you know outside the city walls of, of of Cohor, where the Unsullied set themselves up. So it's 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 a little bit different there. I think George is going to be basing a lot of his stuff from the Winds of Winter off of specific battles. I think. Uh, we've talked about this uh, in the past. I've written a little bit about this. Is that the Battle of Ice that's coming up between Stannis Baratheon and Roose Bolton is going to be based off of the Battle in the Ice, which was a battle between um, the Russian Prince of Novgorod versus Teutonic Crusaders who came to convert the pagan Russians to Catholicism, um, which is a, a, a part of a series of, of wars known as the Northern Crusades, which were called by the Pope to to Christianize um, Russia from from its pagan origins. So I, I think there's there's that battle took place with the the ice lakes and there was a, a large battle that was fought by this guy named Alexander Nevsky, uh, who was the Russian Stannis Baratheon equivalent, uh, who wasn't very liked by his people, who was <laughs> you know fighting in the snows and mm-hmm. uh, he was exiled a couple times I believe by mm-hmm. by the by the by the Republic of Novgorod, um, and then they end up fighting a battle on it on an ice lake allegedly. Now of course George. 
Well, I'll tell the legendary story first briefly, and then I'll go back to probably the historical reality. They fought a battle on the ice lakes. They're fighting, and then the ice breaks underneath of the, the Crusader Knights, and they all fall into the lake and drown to death. Um, interestingly, historically speaking, the oldest historical records have the battle occurring next to this big lake. Uh, so there wasn't actually any battle on the lake. It just uh, ended up being... Um, historically or, or thought popularly as being a battle on top of an ice lake and was captured in uh, that Stalin era film called it called Alexander Nevsky in which Alexander Nevsky I'm getting way off topic here but Alexander Nevsky becomes this like popular hero uh, proletariat fighting against the bourgeois crus- crusaders it's wild fucking historiography I've got to say anyways so you have that there you also have the potential for um the battles between the the, the Golden Company and uh, and Mace Terrell and, and the Knights of the Reach being based off of Agincourt. George is a big fan of Bernard Cornwell, so that's that that seems to be the place that that George can can uh, is intermixing history here. So I, I know that you're you're not necessarily a military historian. You you have many <laughs> great things going for you, sir. Awesome. But I do know that you've been doing these kind of episodes about Lord of the Rings. And while George may be hmm. basing some of his historical battles off of, you know, his battles in A Song of Ice and Fire, rather off of historical battles, I think there's an even stronger influence of, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien on on George's construction of battles. And I'm curious, in your recent read-through of the books, have you seen some of these battles you've seen in Lord of the Rings kind of have their influence felt in A Song of Ice and Fire? Absolutely. I mean, Tolkien, obviously, while drawing from history as much as or even more than George, is also trying to write, you know, cinematic, exciting, thrilling battle sequences where things change immediately at the last second, which is how some historical battles work, but also not necessarily. But that's kind of that's the drive when you're when you're trying to keep your audience gripped. And George definitely uh, drew that from Tolkien. One thing I was thinking about when we were doing the Battle of Blackwater is you have the kind of explosion of fire that happens there, just like at the Battle of Helm's Deep in Tolkien's books, where you have the uruk of Saruman bring some kind of devilry, they call it some kind of blasting fire, <laughs> basically the invention of gunpowder in that world, to blow up the wall. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a big explosion in the movie version of it as well, when the guy's doing like the, the uruk doing like the Olympic run, and Legolas gets him with a couple arrows, but he still manages to blow up the wall. And I was just thinking maybe maybe George is going for a kind of a kind of flip on that where it's the defenders who use the nightmarish fire weapon in the Battle of Blackwater uh. instead of the attacking force. So you have a kind of the moral conundrum of Tyrion wants to defend, you know, Joffrey's rule and the city, I guess, but he's picked this means of doing it. So maybe he's trying to make it more morally complicated there. I am curious to see if we get anything like the outcome of the battle at the Black Gate that happens in the Lord of the Rings, where you have the the, the forces of Gondor and etc. basically marching to attack Sauron as a diversion to get his armies out of Mordor so Frodo can complete his quest. And they're about to lose that battle when Frodo finishes off. So I'm curious if there's any kind of dynamic like that in A Song of Ice and Fire where a battle is resolved because of something Bran does or something else, you know, something magical that happens elsewhere. So I, w- I wonder if George will, will borrow that structure because I could see that being part of how the the uh, unfolding war against the others happens. I can see that. I think it a uh, you know, I think George being the good writer that he does uh will often beg borrow and steal from whatever yes, either indeed. historical or you know, literary inf- influence in order to to craft a, a better story, especially when it comes to the this these military tellings of that we that we see in in, in a song of ice and fire for sure. 
So thank you so, so much to Sir Snark Knight for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes every month, a shirt designed by our friend San Rixian, access to the Slack, weekly mini-sodes that we make before each episode, and more. Yes, and of course, our next bonus episode is going to be about the 1984 version of Dune, which I just finished watching for the first time, and wow. I made Jeff what watch a, Dune, folks. What a movie that was. Goodness gracious. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I will save all of my thoughts for, for the Patreon episode itself, but if you do, if that does sound interesting to you, us covering movies, pop culture, or something, a song of ice and fire theory or character or historically based, yeah, feel free to check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notcast A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos Seaworth, he had spoken to the gods, and the gods sent a ship to rescue him from his rock on Blackwater Bay. Let's find out how Davos Seaworth, the godly warrior, tries to kill another godly warrior in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Davos 2. When he came upon deck, the long point of Driftmark was dwindling behind them while Dragonstone rose from the sea ahead. A pale gray wisp of smoke blew from the top of the mountain to mark where the island lay. Dragonmont is restless this morning, Devos thought, or else Melisandre is burning someone else. Again, we're back to the old, normal, cheery chapter openers for a storm of swords. (laughs) Devos has been thinking a lot about Melisandre as they'd been traversing from Blackwater Bay back to Dragonstone. He knew that she'd be waiting for him, all beautiful and red and full of her god's power. Devos had previously thought that Melisandre was loyal to Stannis, but now... She has broken him as a man breaks a horse. She would ride him to power if she could, and for that she gave my sons to the fire. I will cut the living heart from her breast and see how it burns. He touched the hilt of the fine, long, lysine dirk that the captain had given him. Okay, take that serious moment of Davos thinking about murdering Melisandre with a dirk, and now imagine this, because I think this confirms something really important in A Song of Ice and Fire. That Melisandre had sexual intercourse with Stannis Baratheon, cowgirl style. Confirm, baby. <laughs> Please focus all of your mental Cannon. energy on that thought. Canon. Thank you very much. Back to the present and away from uncomfortable thoughts that should not be thought. The captain of the ship that rescued Davos was Micah, minor character moment here, Corain Sath Mantes. And he'd been kind to Davos, giving him a captain's chambers and feeding him rich food that Davos, of course, immediately threw up. But now Dragonstone was ahead and he could see the shape of the mountain. And how was Davos doing after spending some time on vacation? He was weak, bringing up bloody snot with each cough. He thinks it's nothing because certainly the gods wouldn't let him live to kill him with a bad cold, right? Davos listens to the sounds of the ship, thinking about how being a young man, thinking about being a young man and how these sounds would be the sounds of the Sea Watch coming to hunt down smugglers during the days of Ares the Second Targaryen. But that was a long time ago, when Davos had full-length fingers. That was before the war, the Red Comet, before I was a Seaworth or a knight. I was a different man in those days before Lord Stannis raised me high. Davos learned the rest of the Battle of the Blackwater story from Captain Corain, how the Lannisters attacked from Stannis' flank, how Stannis' bannerman abandoned him, how Renly's ghost showed up to kill. Maybe Davos' sons would show up as ghosts as well? Anyways, Davos asks if anyone stayed loyal to Stannis. The Florence did! Yay! They got rescued and Lord Alistair Florence is the Hand! Y- yay! 
The mountain grew taller, crowned all in pale smoke. The sail sang, the drum beat, the oars pulled smoothly, and before very long, the mouth of the harbor opened before them. So empty, Davos thought, remembering how it had been before, with the ships crowding every quay and rocking at anchor off the, bla off the breakwater. He could see Salador San's flagship Valyrian moored at the quay where Fury and her sisters had once tied up. The ships on either side of her had stripped Lysine halls, had striped Lysine halls as well. In vain, he looked for any sign of Lady Maria or Wraith. Once the ship enters the harbor, the captain states that Davos must first go see Salador San before Stannis. Besides, no one actually sees the king these days, and Davos agrees, not that he really has the option to disagree. And they head over to Salador San's ship, the Valyrian. But Salador San isn't there. Instead, Davos finds him aboard another ship, the Bountiful Harvest, counting out the number of jars of pepper. And then Sala sees Davos. Is it pepper? Sticking my eyes or tears. Is this the knight of the onions who stands before me? No. How could it be my dear friend Davos died on the burning river, I'll agree. Why has he come to haunt me? I am no ghost, Sala. What else? The onion knight was never so thin, so pale as you. Salador San threaded his way between the jars of spice and bolts of cloth that filled the hold of the merchanter, wrapped Davos in a fierce embrace, then kissed him once on each cheek at a third time on his forehead. You are still warm, sir, and I feel your heart thumpity-thumping. Can it be true? The sea that swallowed you has spit you up again. Well, Davos thinks back to Patchface and how that dude had come out of the sea mad. Is Davos mad now as well? He coughs and relays to Sala how he swam under the chain and ended up on a spear of the Merlin King before he was rescued by Captain Karain. Salador San wraps an arm around Karain's shoulder, telling him he's going to get a reward out of rescuing Davos. Anyways, Sala tells Davos that he has to finish up some work, but Davos should head over to his cabin. His eunuch servants will get him some hot mulled wine and some cheese and olives, and then Sala will meet him there for snack time. So Davos heads to the cabin, sits in an enormous chair, and proceeds to enjoy the wine, cheese, and olives. They seem good to me. Sala appears a few minutes later, apologizing for the taste of the wine. But Davos is thankful for how the wine is warming his chest. Anyways, is Davos enjoying the big-ass chair he's sitting in? Uh, sure. Whose chair is it? Why, it's Illyrio Mopatis' chair, of course. And how did Salador's son get Illyrio's chair? Did he pirate it from Sala? Vile calumny. Who has suffered more from pirates than Salador San, I ask? Only what is due to me. Much gold, oh, oh yes, but I am not without reason. So in place of coin, I have taken a handsome parchment, very crisp. It bears the name and seal of Lord Alistair Florent, the Hand of the King. I am made Lord of Blackwater Bay, and no vessel may be crossing my lordly waters without my lordly leave, no. And then these outlaws are trying to steal past me in the night. To avoid my lawful duties and customs, why, they are no better than smugglers, so I am well within my rights to seize them. The old pirate laughed. <laughs> I cut off no finger, man's fingers, though. What good are bits of fingers? The ships I am taking, the cargoes, a few ransoms, not, nothing unreasonable. He gave Davos a sharp look. You are unwell, my friend, that cough and so thin. I am seeing your bones through your skin, and yet I am not seeing your little bag of finger bones. 
Davos reaches up for the finger bones that aren't there, noting that he lost them in the river. Will he ever bring those lost finger bones up again? Who knows? Who can say? Is that ever going to come up again in the Storm of Swords? Mm. Sala observes the, observed the carnage of the Blackwater Rush from the bay. Davos asks if any other ships made it. Sure. Lord Stefan, Ragagena, Swift Sword, Laughing Lord, and a few others. <clears throat> Lady Maria, Davos asked. Wraith? Salad Rasan put a hand on Davos's forearm and gave a squeeze. No. Of them, no. I am sorry, my friend. They were good men, your Dale and Allard, but the comfort I can give you. But there is comfort I can give you. Your young Devon was among those we took off at the end. The brave boy never once left the king's side. Or so they say. For a moment, Davos felt almost dizzy. His relief was palpable. He had been afraid to ask about Devon. The mother, is the mother is merciful. I must go to him, Sela. I must see him. Yeah, sure, Salador Sons. Maybe go see your wife first. Obligatory girls gone canon preference. Davos, go home to your wife. Sala will even give Davos a ship. Oh, no, 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 no need. Stannis will provide the ship for Davos. Uh, well, um, no, because Stannis doesn't have ships anymore. Anyways, Davos will come work for Salador Sons. Yes, smuggling and doing the old jobs again. No, no. His duty is to Stannis. He keeps having to remind Saladrasan of this. And he must keep fighting. Besides, Stannis is the rightful heir. All the laws are not helping when there are on all his ships burn up, I am thinking. And your king, well, you will be finding him changed, I am fearing. Since the battle, he sees no one but broods in a stone drum. Queen Selyse keeps court for him with her uncle, the Lord Alistair, who is naming himself the Hand. The king's seal she has given to this uncle to fix to the letters he writes, even to my pretty parchment. But it is a little kingdom they are ruling, poor and rocky, yes. There is no gold, not even a little bit to pay. Faithful Salador San, what is owed him? And only those knights we took off at the end, and no ships but my little brave few. Devos coughs, so he's coughing a lot in this chapter, and asks if Sala is serious. No one? Well, Stannis sees one person. Her. But Sala wants to move quickly past that point. Devos, you should get a blanket and a bed and a hot compress for his chest and more wine. But no, that is not Davos's path. Anyways, her. You mean Melisandre? Davos asks. The Lysini gave him a long, doubtful look and continued reluctantly. The guards keep all the others away, even his queen and his little daughter. Servants bring meals that no one eats. Salador's son leaned forward and lowered his voice. Queer talking I have heard of hungry fires within the mountains, and how Stannis and the Red Woman go down together to watch the flames. There are shafts, they say, and secret stairs down into the mountain's heart, into hot places where only she may walk unburned. It is enough and more to give an old man such terrors that sometimes he can scarcely find the strength to eat. Melisandre, Davos shivered. The, the, the red woman did this to him, he said. She sent the fire to consume us to punish Stannis for setting her aside to teach him that he could not hope to win without her sorceries. The Lysene chose a plump olive from a bowl between them. You were not the first to be saying this, my friend, but if I am you, I am not saying it so loudly. Dragonstone crawls with these queen's men. Oh, yes, and they have sharp ears and sharper knives. He popped the olive into his mouth. Well, not not to fear. Davos has a knife. He's going to cut Melisandre's heart out. Uh, again, Davos, I just asked you to keep your voice down. Please, please, not so loud these days. Even if you're joking, dude, like, 
please keep your voice down, but Davos is not joking. He's going to fucking kill Melisandre, provided that she can be murdered by actual human weapons. She had survived poison that no that one time after all, but old Iron might kill a demon, or so the old story said. Salador San says that Davos is talking dangerously. Maybe he's delirious, hopefully. In other words, buddy, it's time for you to take a nap. But Davos knows that Sala is trying to delay him long enough to weaken his will. Davos got to his feet. He did feel feverish and a little dizzy, but it did not matter. You are a treacherous old rogue, Salador San, but a good friend all the same. The Lyseni stroked his pointed silver beard. Uh, so with this great friend you'll be staying, yes? No. I will be going. Davos coughed. Always coughing. Where is Davos going to go? He's he's weak. He's, of course, going to the castle to murder Melisandre. He can't believe he has to keep telling this guy over, this over and over again. But great. But Davos is not a killer. He's a smuggler. Remember, that's your profession, bro. Beyond that, while Davos was away, Selyse was burning traitors like Lord Sunglass and Hubert Rampton's sons. And that's what Davos is going to get if he tries to kill Melisandre. Burned. She will sing, and you will scream, and then you will die, and then you have only just come back to life. And that is why, said Davos, to do this thing, to make an end of Melisandre of Ashai and all her works, why else would the sea have spit me out? You know Blackwater Bay as well as I do, Sala. No sensible captain would have ever taken his ship through the spears of the Burling King and risk ripping out his bottom. Shehela's dance should never have come near me. Um, was that maybe the wind, Davos? Ah, well, the mother sent the wind. The, the, the mother? But 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 your mom is dead? Salador sounds a little confused here. No, 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 not Davos's mom. The mother. The mother spoke to Davos, and she was sad about being burned. And she was also sad about the shadows that Melisandre had birthed. She was sad about Cress and Renly and Courtney Penrose getting got, dying peacefully in their sleep. How long am I going to keep that... that thing going? I don't know. Someone has to kill Melisandre for making mom sad. Sh sure, someone, Sala says. They'll go to Bravos to hire a faceless man. No. Davos has to be the one to do it, and Salador San needs to let Davos Seaworth go. Salador San pushed himself to his feet. You are no true friend, I'm thinking. When you are dead, who will be bringing your ashes and bones back to your lady wife and telling her that she has lost a husband and four sons? Only sad old Salador San. But so be it, brave Sir Knight. Go rushing to your grave. I will gather your bones in a sack and give them to the sons you leave behind to wear in little bags around your neck. He waved an angry hand with rings on every finger. Go, 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 go. Daos did not want to leave like this. Sala, go or stay. Better. But if you were going, go. Davos went. Doesn't often get remarked upon about being this one of the sadder scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire, but I think that is some sad shit right there. Davos walks out of the ship, passing by an empty town with half the houses showing signs of mourning in the windows. Thousands went to war, hundreds returned. It takes a while for sick man Davos to reach the castle gates, but he eventually arrives and finds that the way is shut. Davos pounds in the door, receiving no answer. He decides to start kicking on the door, and finally a crossbowman appears above, and let me tell you, this guy is a towering fucking intellect. This guy appears above the castle gate, and he asks who goes there. It's Davos who goes there. He's here to see King Stannis. When the crossbowman tells him to get lost, Davos tells him to go talk to the king's squire, his son Devon. 
This gets the man's attention, and he asks who Davos is claiming to be. Again, we've been over this. It's Davos. No way! Davos died. No, Davos is standing here. He is alive. He wants to get inside the castle. How many times are we going to kind of do this back and forth? Davos then asks if Jate is still captain of the guard. No, Guy Crossbowman never heard of him. He's probably dead. How about Hook Face Will or Hal the Hog? Oh yeah, Guy knows them. They're dead. But given that Guy knows these dudes, he's going to check on the, this thing. As Guy heads off, Davos thinks about all the dead men who once manned the castle. Gone. All gone, he thought dully, remembering how fat Hal's white belly always showed beneath his grease-stained doublet, the long scar the fish hook had left across Will's face, the way Jate always doffed his cap at the women, be they five or fifty, highborn or low, drowned or burned, with my sons and a thousand others, gone to make a king in hell. Kind of battle imagery there. But then Guy Crossbowman is back. He tells Davos to head around to the other side, and they'll admit him there. So Davos walks around, and he finds the guards are now all Florence, which is a less than heartening sign, shall we say. But they don't take him to the stone drum to see, to see Stannis. Instead, he is ordered to wait at Aegon's garden under the arch of the dragon's tail. Davos asks if Stannis knows he's back, but the Florentines don't know. Regardless, Davos is unsure why they brought him to Aegon's garden with its pleasant piney smells and tall dark trees, wild roses, thorny hedges, and a spot where cranberries grew. Then Davos heard a faint ringling, ringing of bells and the child's giggle, and suddenly the full patch face popped from the bushes, shambling along as fast as he could, with the princess Shireen hot on his heels. You come back now, she was shouting after him. Patches, you come back! When the fool saw Davos, he jerked to a sudden halt. The bells on his antlered helm antler tin helm going tingling tingling hopping from one foot to the other he sang fool's blood king's blood blood on the maiden's thigh but change for the guests and change for the bridegroom i i i shireen almost caught him then but at last at the last instant he hopped over a patch of bracken and vanished along the trees the princess was right behind him the sight of them made davos smile Kind of some interesting, you know, song lyrics there, Patchface. What do they mean? Before Davos can think on it more, he gets pile-driven into the ground by a man. No, wait, a boy. Jet black hair down to his collar, the boy demands to know why Davos was in his way. He shouldn't be in Davos's way. And Davos agrees, coughing, and the boy asks if Davos needs a maester. No, Davos is totally fine. Anyways, the boy was playing Monsters and Banes with his cousin. He was the monster. What is Davos's name? There's a lot of who are you, Davos, going on in this chapter. His name is Davos, of course, Sir Davos Seaworth. Interesting, the boy reflects. Davos doesn't look like a knight. I am the Knight of Onions, my lord. The blue eyes blinked. The one with the black ship? You know the tale. You brought my uncle Stannis fish to eat before I was born when Lord Tyrell had him under siege. The boy drew himself up tall. I am Edric Storm, he announced. King Robert's son. Of course you are. Davos had known that almost at once. The lad had the prominent ears of a florent, but the hair, eyes, and the jaw, the cheekbones, those were all Baratheon. Edric wants to know if Davos knew his dad. Sure, but he never spoke to Robert. The boy tells Davos that his dad taught him how to fight and how he came to see him almost every year where they trained. And his dad sent him a warhammer at Storm's End, but he had to leave it behind when he came to Dragonstone. Anyways, did Uncle Stannis cut off Davos's fingers? Not exactly. Just the last joint. Really? This piques the boy's curiosity. How about Davos show him? Davos peeled his glove off. The boy studied his hand carefully. He did not shorten your thumb. 
No, Davos coughed. No, he, he, he left me that. He should not have chopped any of your fingers, the lad declared. That was ill done. Oh, I was a smuggler. Yes, but you smuggled him fish and onions. Lord Stannis knighted me for the onions and took my fingers for the smuggling. Davos puts his glove back on and Edric says that Robert wouldn't have chopped his fingers off. Davos agrees kind of nervously thinking, um, yeah, Edric, see, bro, you seem a lot like Robert and a lot like Renly. I'm a little, uh, little nervous about that, a little anxious about that. Is that the theme of a song of, of Storm of Swords in Davos' chapters? I don't know. Before Edric can interrogate Davos more, Davos hears footsteps. He turns to see the hero, the hero, Sir Axel Florent coming down with a dozen guardsmen, wearing the fiery heart of the Lord of Light, a less than encouraging sign. Davos starts to cough as Sir Axel approaches him. Davos remembers that Axel used to suck up to Davos when Davos was in Stannis' favor, favor, but uh, he ain't sucking up now. He asks how Davos is still alive instead of drowned. Onions float, sir. Have you come to take me to the king? <laughs> I have come to take you to the dungeon. Sir Axel waved his bend forward. Seize him and take his dirk. He means to use it on our lady. Sir Axel Florent, not a hero, and that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Davos 2. Boy, I had really forgotten how early we get into the action of Davos Seaworth's story in A Storm of Swords. Uh, another barn burner of a mostly forgotten chapter. What did you think, sir? Well, we're back with my favorite POV in A Storm of Swords. I'm sorry, the objectively best POV in A Storm of Swords. Like I said when we did Davos 1, I just, I love the structure of his story in this book. Just every, every plot beat building beautifully from that sparse beginning with Davos on his rock. And now the solitary man is reintroduced to society. Davos thinks he's been reborn in the light of the seven to carry out their will. He's a knight on a quest to kill the wicked witch, but he totally fails. This chapter is a series of false starts and setbacks for the new Davos. Even as he comes into his own as a POV, with his own motivations separate from those of Stannis, Davos is still searching for a foundation on which to rebuild his life. This chapter reveals how difficult and painful that process is. Throughout the book, Davos will continue to struggle to do the right thing. There, there, there's too many still, there's, I said there is, but there's still too many fans who think that Davos is this unambiguously heroic figure whose mm -hmm. only fault is his uber loyalty to Stannis, or I guess him cheating on his wife. That that sucks. What A Storm of Swords, and especially this chapter, do is demonstrate that Davos has a little bit more grayness and complexity to his character than meets the eye. Now, maybe we're all in on this Davos murder quest thing to try and, you know, again, murder Melisandre, but as rebreeders, do we think this is fair for Davos to kill someone for a crime she probably almost definitely didn't commit, namely sending the fires that ended Stannis' hopes on the Blackwater and killed several of Davos's sons? I don't think so. And I think Davos is being a little wild and a little out of control here. I mean, in this chapter, Salador San is the voice of reason. <laughs> right. Let me repeat that. Salador San is the voice of reason in this chapter. He's a pirate. But what I love most about this chapter is how it starts our return to form for Davos. Davos is coming home, or he's returning to Dragonstone. Is, is Dragonstone Davos's home now? I guess it is kind of is, isn't it? I guess so. That's sad, because it's, uh, it's not a fun place to be. And yeah, this chapter is our reintroduction to Dragonstone, where we spent the very first Davos chapter before he moved on to Storm's End and then King's Landing for the battle. In Storm of Swords, we spend a lot more time here, five Davos chapters on Dragonstone. So we get a complete story, instead of just the launching pad for Stannis' campaign, 
and the image in this chapter of Dragonstone rearing from the sea like some primeval beast locks us right back into that gloomy gothic dread that I love so much. It looms over <laughs> Davos as he sails closer and closer, representing how he has become obsessed with Melisandre. He's seeing her everywhere, thinking that the watchfires remind him of her and the reflected light of the sun on the water. She's a force of nature, like a god herself, or a devil in Davos's eyes. It's gorgeous writing. George compares the clouds to Melisandre's silks and satins. It's one of those images you just want to reach out and touch. It reminds me of the beginning of Davos's story, when Melisandre was burning the gods on the beach. But this time, it's all in his head. It's all him looking at things that aren't Melisandre and saying, yeah, that looks like her. I argued in Davos 1 that he didn't actually witness the mother that wasn't actually a divine force coming to him. She was a hallucination brought on by guilt, grief, and deprivation. I think you could see more evidence of that here, when Melisandre has kind of replaced the mother as the divine image driving him on. And that might sound familiar. It's exactly how Maester Crescent thought in the prologue to Clash of Kings when we first met all these characters on Dragonstone. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think George is expanding on Crescent's miniature downfall, fleshing it out as a gauntlet for Davos. Crescent saw Melisandre in the comet, he associated them together, and now Davos is seeing her in the clouds. Crescent thought he needed to act in order to save Stannis from Melisandre, like Stannis wasn't making any choices, and Davos thinks the same. He no longer believes that Melisandre is loyal to Stannis. He thinks she's riding the king to power, like he's a beast of burden for her, and that she sacrificed his sons to that cause. Turns out, that's not true. <laughs> Melisandre is sincere in her support for Stannis, as we find out when she becomes a POV, and there is no evidence she had anything to do with the wildfire explosion. Davos is just kind of making that up. And I love the dynamic that we find out that Melisandre is sincere in her beliefs about Stannis being both the Zora High, since a lot of people thought that, he, that she was just kind of faking the funk in order to get to the real Zora High, Jon Snow, like kind of using Stannis as like kind of this ship to like sail forward. But I think, you know, at the same time, I think it's it's really fun storytelling that it's like, oh, no, Davos, you are, you are so wrong here. Because, you know, we argued back during our episodes in the Blackwater that maybe having Melisandre the Blackwater, that might have been an actual benefit for Stannis, at least tactically speaking. And as we'll see later at the Battle of the Wall, Melisandre is going to use her fire magic to burn Norrell's eagle. What could she have done at the Blackwater is a question fans should be asking more, but don't let but don't, except for us, the heroic podcasters <laughs> from the Not A Cast podcast. But that's that's only the tactics, right? The strategy of Stannis gaining the Iron Throne with the help of Melisandre and R'hllor may have proven problematic to Stannis holding the throne in the long term. That That's a viewpoint that Davos held back in A Clash of Kings, and it's one that's only strengthened here in A Storm of Swords. There, There's more than an air of paranoia that Davos has about Melisandre. He's kind of become a full-blown conspiracy theorist, twisting facts to fit his conclusion that Melisandre was at fault for Stannis' defeat. In this, I think Davos kind of stands in for the Westerosi prejudice against the Lord of Light foreign gods and the fear of the small O other. Still, even while Davos is acting completely fucking paranoid, he isn't also completely wrong about R'hllor and Melisandre and the dangers that they pose to Westeros and to his beloved Stannis, who, of course, Melisandre has ensorcelled, right? That's what's happening here. She's taken away his will and he's not making any decisions, which, as we find out, is not the case. But yeah, obviously, I'm not going to pretend that Melisandre is just, like, secretly gentle and nice. Davos still has <laughs> very good reason to fear her and want to remove her from power. She's been burning people alive, as we'll find out later. But Davos 
he already seems to know it on some level as this chapter starts. Hmm. A pale gray wisp of smoke blew from the top of the mountain to mark where the islands lay. Dragonmont is restless this morning, Davos thought, or else Melisandre is burning someone else. Moreover, she won't stop there. We learn gradually in this book that she's trying to convince Stannis to sacrifice his nephew, Edric Storm. These are horrific actions. They cause unimaginable pain to really no guaranteed benefit. But George loves complicating our initial moral responses. In Melisandre's case, the complications arise in terms of how Crescent and now Davos propose to stop her, what it reveals about them. Crescent struck preemptively, before Melisandre had even done anything besides convert Selyse, which, you know, I think that was probably a pretty easy task on her part. <laughs> Crescent brought the murder weapon. Melisandre went so far as to tell him he didn't need to drink the poison wine himself. As for Davos... In this chapter, he's kind of lost the down-to-earth qualities that make him so relatable. Suddenly, all he cares about in the world is his mission. Stick a knife in Melisandre. And she intervenes to save Davos's life later in the book, when the Florence want to burn him alive too. And George captures this ambiguity in the imagery, writing that the clouds take on her red color for Davos at both dawn and sunset. So it's unclear. Is she going to bring him the light or bring him the darkness? We're going to see that play out in his next chapter when they reunite. Davos is divided as well. He thinks that he still feels this, like, instinctive dread, like his shoulders clench up, the hairs stand up at the sound of oars in the water, because that reminds him of his smuggling days when he was, you know, trying to race ahead of those oars, barely escaping the Mad King's men with his skin intact. That was another lifetime, he thinks. That was a different man. And now I've been reborn as a holy warrior. It's the same way Melisandre thinks that she used to be a child named Melanie before being reborn in the light of the Lord. Davos thinks that he doesn't have to fear the sound of ships now because he's a knight. Well, Melisandre thinks that she doesn't have to fear the dark anymore because God is on her side. Ironically, Melisandre's rivals invest in signs and portents just like her. Crescent winds up thinking that the comet is his, and Davos, of course, thinks that the mother saved him for this purpose. Davos is so caught up in the metaphysical that he ignores the physical, his own body. He's wheezing and coughing, as you were saying, throughout this whole chapter. His legs barely support him, but he doesn't care. Because surely the gods did not bring him back to die of a cough. That wouldn't make any sense. There has to be a narrative here. <laughs> well, who does that sound like? Yeah, Melisandre, who also ignores her body. No food, she thinks. No sleep. I don't need it. All I need is the light of the Lord. The crowning image here is Davos's little fantasy of pulling out Melisandre's heart and setting it on fire like it's Temple of Doom. Like, wait a minute, Davos. <laughs> heart on fire? That's her god's symbol. As with Cresson, in trying to kill Melisandre, Davos has basically become Melisandre. And that's an idea that's well-founded in philosophy and spirituality. Aggression is cancerous. It turns noble Jedi into corrupted Sith. There's that line from... Uh, from Ian McShane's like little uh, one-off episode uh, appearance in season six of Game of Thrones when he's talking to Sandor about war. Violence is a disease. You don't cure a disease by spreading it to more people. And I think George is making a version of that argument with Davos here. Davos is on his own hero's journey now, right? Stannis almost becomes kind of a supporting character for him in this book. And in Dance, he doesn't interact with Stannis at all. He yeah, speaking of the hero's journey structure, there's the, the part in the, that's the belly of the whale. And in dance, Davos literally ends up in the belly of the whale. Okay, he ends up in a <laughs> pub called Belly of the Whale, but for, for him, that's basically the same thing. And a big part of the hero's journey is recognizing 
that you have the potential to become that which you're fighting. There's a, a great French movie called L'Entreu, and there's a, the opening line of it uh, is, your worst enemies are hiding inside, in the shadows of your heart. And that's something Davos has to face. Davos's overall mission in this book is not to kill Melisandre. It's to find something to believe in. Right now, killing Melisandre is what he's going with, but he can't, he can't really find his new foundation. He can't accomplish that by cutting out Melisandre's heart. He has to use his own heart instead, and we're going to see that uh, develop later in the chapter. Excellently said. And I think your comparison of Davos to Melisandre is really spot on. And I'd like to expand that to say that Davos is also resembling two other characters, two unlikable characters, Queen Selyse and later Axel Florin too, because Selyse, unlike Stannis, is a true believer in the Lord of Light, believing wholeheartedly in her god with the zeal of a convert. Moreover, if you'll call from Davos's first chapter in The Clash of Kings, that we did with Sir Frank B., the King's Justice, Axel Florin approached Davos and told him of seeing things in the flames. Of course, Axel Florin's vision in the flames was quite self-serving, as we talked about. He saw the glory of Stannis's victory in the flames. Hmm... That's kind of like Davos here in Davos' second chapter of A Storm of Swords. Davos has the zeal of a new convert, taking on a viewpoint of a taking on the viewpoint of religion of a fierce of fierce devotion and belief in the faith of the seven without the moderating moderating maturity of your Catelyn Starks, let's say. And the mother is validating all of his previously held beliefs regarding the complicity of Melisandre and the need for her to die at his hands. The danger of belief, then, I think what George is saying, is that it serves the needs and wants of the believer. True religion, the type by practiced by Catelyn, by Ned, by John a little bit, is one which convicts the believer, grants them doubt about their purpose, and drives them towards positive change in their lives. Again, the true best version of religion. It's a lesson that Davos will have to learn, and he'll start to learn this lesson from the most un unlikely of sources. Admiral, Lord, what is he now? Lord Salador San of the Blackwater. Davos sets foot on Dragonstone once more. He's ready to kill the Wicked Witch and save his noble king. He can already hear the songs being written about him. And then he falls over coughing and is immediately <laughs> led away. And that, I think, just sums up the chapter as a whole, right? Davos has this one-track mind. He knows exactly what he's doing, how it's going to work out, why he's doing it. But he keeps being diverted by his own body and by the people around him. No one sees the king, says the captain who found him, setting up a major dynamic for Davos's chapters in this book. Stannis, you know, never had much patience for other people, I'm putting that politely, <laughs> but now his world has shrunk down radically. Stannis is almost a ghostly presence in these first few Davos chapters, much discussed, but never seen. Instead, the captain takes Davos to the man he really works for, the only person on Dragonstone to survive the battle unscathed, Salador San. When Sala was introduced, I pointed out how different he is from everyone else on Dragonstone. Here's a flamboyant guy having a good time, not just miserable like everybody else. That's even more true now. Everyone else on Dragonstone is obsessed with what they've lost. Sala is reintroduced here, literally counting up what he's gained. It's not the end of the world for him. What does he care if Stannis lost the battle? This isn't Salador's fight. He's in it for the money. If Redwine sails show up on the horizon to defeat Stannis in Joffrey's name, Sala would run for it, with no regrets. Which makes him a perfect foil for Davos. He's the man Davos could have been if he never tied his family's fortunes and self-worth to Stannis. Simply by virtue of surviving the battle, Sala's become a power broker over here. The only ships left are his, and Stannis owes him a ton of money. But there's not much gold on Dragonstone, so they've paid him with a title instead. 
Salador is now the lord of Blackwater Bay. But all this amounts to, in practice, is giving Sala a legal justification for piracy. As he says now, now it's my job to stop <laughs> ships and seize them and steal all their goods. I'm just, that's a very official now. But he's not, his practice hasn't changed one bit, which is just hysterical. I love it. And I think because every podcast episode for the past three episodes has involved me boring you with some historical background for how George crafted his story, we arrive again at George remixing some more history into A Song of Ice and Fire. Because Salador San's role here resembles that of the privateer during the Age of Sail. If you all remember your seventh grade history, privateers were essentially legal pirates who operated legally again through a letter of mark from the crown, or in an American context, a letter of mark and reprisal. Salador San's own letter of mark in A Song of Ice and Fire is a lordship and authorization to rob ships, excuse me, expropriate legally ships moving in and out of Blackwater Bay, all for the king, of course. I, I can't imagine Salador San's lordship and piracy really endeared Stannis to the sailors since small folk reliant on the influx of goods in and out of King's Landing, especially a King's Landing that just recently barely survived a battle. I also can't imagine that Stannis gives a fuck either, given that he lost the Battle of the Blackwater. Still, the fact that Salador San is here legally stealing from people belies this justice robot imagery surrounding Stannis. He is willing to bend the rules to allow legal theft to make ends meet. In addition to showing Stannis's moral and political flexibility, Stannis's allowance of Salador San's actions is an early indicator of future plot points, that is, the sack of Claw Isle. While I think we'll both argue that Stannis was testing Davos in that instance, Salador San playing the role of a pirate on the, under the auspices of Stannis's legality might might lead Davos to think that Stannis wasn't just testing Davos, but actually considering further benefits in his Justice Man exterior. One kind of break in the wall kind of leads to another, and there's a certain momentum there that almost makes it easier. We're going to see that definitely develop with Stannis with regards to Edric Storm later in Storm of Swords. But yeah, that it's. I think the privateers are a great comparison. I'm always fascinated by that. By that kind of thin line between legitimate businessman and career criminal and how sometimes there really is just no line between those two things at all. Obviously, that's what a lot of great uh, crime and mafia stories are about, are about how you how you cross between those borders. And I think we see that going on here. It's like how Vargo Hote switched sides from the Lannisters to the Starks, but his role stayed the same. Terrorize and shake down the peasants. As Davos has climbed the ladder, he's found fresh burdens waiting for him. I had to give up my fingers. I had to give up my ship, my sons. As Sala has climbed the ladder, he hasn't had to change at all. Look at, his, look at this boat he just took. He's got this chair like a throne. He's got all the food he could want. Davos, meanwhile, can't keep down the rich food they're feeding him. And he just enjoys the cheap wine. By becoming a lord, Salador has gained the right to prey on smugglers. Smugglers like Davos used to be. So Salador reflects Davos' identity struggle back at him. His lord self can't coexist with his smuggler self. He has to decide which one he's going to be. Davos' finger bones kind of stand in for that struggle. Salador notes that while he takes smugglers' goods, he doesn't cut off their fingers like Stannis does. He's removed from the cycle of sacrifice and loss that defines Davos' rise to power. It's just kind of business for Sala. Davos kept his bag of finger bones because they symbolized his luck reminding him of how unlikely it was for a smuggler to become a knight. But now Salador notices that Davos has lost them. That narrative of ascension, class mobility, Davos' own American dream, burned up on the Blackwater with his sons. And now he's being tempted away from that whole cycle of sacrifice. 
Sala offers Davos a ship, saying he should sail home to see his remaining family and then keep going. Abandon Stannis' service and become a smuggler again. We'll get rich in the free cities, just like old times. But Davos says that no, Stannis will give me a new ship, like he gave me a knighthood. The war will go on and I will fight in it, because Stannis is the rightful king. He's the man who changed my life. He raised me up. He gave me a new name, a new identity. That's the Lord's face, right? Arguing against Sala, who's the smuggler's face. Davos thinks of himself as a prophet in this chapter, right? Prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. But Sala is more about the other kind of prophets, the prophets with an F. That's the, the dollar sign is all Sala cares about there. So this is Davos at the crossroads. He's being reborn with an uncertain sense of self. Turns out really Stannis has no ships to give besides Sala's. The king's legal claim to the Iron Throne didn't prevent all his ships from burning up. It's that realization, the hard limits on his power, that seems to have broken Stannis. He has retreated inward, brooding on his failures. While the winners of the battle, the Lannisters and the Tyrells, hold court in King's Landing, Stannis has abandoned his political duties as king, leaving the business of ruling to Queen Selyse and her uncle, Alistair Florent, who was now the Hand. Stannis will quickly come to regret that decision. In later Davos chapters, the Florents will become his true enemies, even more than Melisandre. Dragonstone belongs to the Queen's men, now more than ever. We've already seen Alistair Florent jump opportunistically onto the R'hllor bandwagon, and it looks like his men have followed suit. But for now, Davos's focus is squarely on the Red Woman, as this religious figure of corruption and dread. Salador won't even say her name out loud. He's heard that Stannis and Melisandre have been spelunking beneath the surface of Dragonstone, searching for the heart of the fire, the volcanic core of Stannis's molten rage, where only she can walk unharmed, like Danny emerging from the pyre with the dragon eggs. To burn and yet be unburnt is a powerful spiritual image, resonating both as classical myth and Christian metaphor. For Melisandre, it's proof of concept that her god is real. Look at what I can do. Davos interprets it another way. She's a demon out of hell, and the songs say demons can be killed by cold iron. Sala tries to dissuade Davos, revealing that Melisandre has burned Lord Sunglass and Hubert Rampton's sons, who defied Stannis regarding the burning of the Seven in the last book. These are the first human sacrifices to R'hllor. We've gone from painted wood to living flesh. And yeah, I don't think there's any justification for this. This is cruel and unusual punishment. Even if you think they need to be executed, there's, there's no need to do it by fire. While Stannis himself didn't oversee this atrocity, he also didn't do anything about it when he got back to Dragonstone. It's not like Melisandre lost power because of this. Later on, Stannis will officially take responsibility for it. He will tell Stannis, the new Lord Sunglass sailed to Volantis when I burned his brother. That's the situation Davos is walking into. Pretty, um, pretty fraught. Not fun. <laughs> fraught, bleak, sad. That's just the situation that, that, that Davos is here. And I think it's exactly correct that Stannis wasn't personally there when Sunglass and Rampton's sons were burned, but that Stannis didn't punish Selyse and Melisandre for the act works as post facto royal sanctioning of the burnings. Because in this, Stannis may have thought that burning these men was just in that they were traitors, with Gunster Sunglass telling Stannis back in the Clash of Kings that he couldn't support him after the destruction of the Dragonstone Sept, and Hubert Rampton's two sons killing Queensmen who were then smashing up the Sept. That is not how Melisandre and Selyse probably framed the act. To them, these were sacrifices to the Lord of Light. 
That's a similar dynamic that we're going to see playing throughout Stannis' story in A Song of Ice and Fire, with Alistair Florent being burned ostensibly for treason. But Davos will note how Lord Florent's burning created a foul wind which blew them to Eastwatch. Additionally, it's similar to the Peasbury men from A Dance with Dragons, who are ostensibly burned for cannibalism, but there are a lot of people in Stannis' camp, all of those lovely knights like Sir Clayton Suggs, who are openly declaring that these men were burned to stop the blizzard snows. In fact, they even like sing, bring an end to these snows in the winter and bring your lord's light down on us and melt these snows. There is this sometimes... Uh, dynamic that I see in my own life where, you know, subordinates do the sketchy thing to prevent the boss from catching the blame and condemnation for it. And I, and I think there's a really great uh, parallel example in A Song of Ice and Fire, and that's when Bloodraven arrested and then murdered Aenys Blackfire after promising him safe conduct to attend the Great Council of 233 AC to stake his claim to the Iron Throne. Bloodraven did the hard thing, the evil thing. But in that example, Aegon V Targaryen, after he was crowned Aegon V Targaryen, arrested Bloodraven and dispatched him to the wall for his crime. That's not the conduct of Stannis Baratheon with these burnings. He isn't punishing the people who held torches to fires, and I don't believe he ever will, until maybe it's too late with Shireen. Maybe that's the reason why he'll off himself, potentially. And that's the question that Davos faces here. If he's caught... The Queen's men could potentially face no no consequences for whatever they do to Davos. Either way, he's screwed. You know, Sala says that if Davos kills Melisandre, they'll burn him for it. If he tries and fails, they'll burn him for that too. Either way, this is suicide. <laughs> and what a waste that would be, Sala says. It's a miracle you survived at all. And now you want to throw it away? But Davos argues that this is why he was reborn. Shayala's dance, the ship that saved him, should never have come near me, he says. The mother intervened to save my life, and this is why, to kill Melisandre. Sala says it was an ill wind that drove that ship to Davos. Davos counters it was the mother who sent the wind. Once again, he sounds like Melisandre, who says that R'hllor worked through Walder Frey to kill Robb Stark. So who's right here? I admire Davos for his principles. It takes courage to walk into a dragon's mouth, defying abuses of power even at potential cost to your life. But I think Sal is right that this holy warrior mindset is leading Davos to make foolish choices. Even on his best day, Davos is no assassin. And this is not his best day. He's physically ill and mentally stressed. He really doesn't seem to have a plan besides walk up to Melisandre and stab her in the face. And hey, why would you need more of a plan if you're determined that the gods have your back? When Davos hears about Renly's ghost at the Blackwater, he believes it. He's seen shadow babies, he's heard the mother's voice, so why can't ghosts be real? But, as we'll find out for real later in this book, it wasn't Renly's ghost. It was just a man in his armor. And the same rule kind of applies here. Davos is just a guy. He'll burn like any other guy. The gods won't intervene for him. So Davos' most powerful enemy here is himself. He's trying to exercise his own guilt. The mother said that he called the fire, and as he admits to Sala, he called the shadows too. There's nothing more universal than trying to escape guilt. I think we all do that at whatever level we engage with it on. But it's leading Davos down some dangerous paths. He says that Melisandre killed Renly, which is true, and Courtney Penrose, which is true. But he also says that she killed Cresson, which Davos knows isn't true, because he saw Cresson slip the poison into his own wine. Finally, Davos accuses Melisandre of killing his sons, which gives the game away. She wasn't there. He's the one who led them into battle. 
Davos is dedicating himself to death, so he won't have to deal with the agony of being alive. He has vengeance in his belly, he says, and no room for food. He's given up on the stuff of life. He thinks that this is already hard, and Sala is making it harder, by reminding him that he still has a lot to live for. When Davos says the mother spoke to him, Sala points out that Davos' mother is dead. And that's what matters. Our fellow humans, not the gods we might be making up in our heads. As Davos says, Sala might be a treacherous rogue, but moments like that prove that he's a true friend. Yeah, and Davos isn't, Sala snaps back. <laughs> Davos has devoted himself to killing Melisandre, like he devoted himself to serving Stannis as his god. And in both cases, he hollows himself out, and he betrays the bonds he has to other people. Davos is not willing to recognize that. He's leaving Sala with the task of returning his burnt bones to his wife. I had forgotten until this reread how Sala confronts Davos with the image of his surviving sons wearing those bones, Davos' bones, around their necks after he dies. Oh, that's, that's a blow, man. That's a, that's a really powerful image. Instead of symbolizing luck, those bones would symbolize loss, the burden of grief, a noose around their necks. Is that who you want to be to them? No longer their living, loving father, but only a memory? When Sala first sees Davos, he calls him a ghost. And that's what he'll be if the Queen's men sacrifice him to R'hllor, a ghost like Renly. Davos thinks his mission is righteous, but at some level it's also irresponsible, even kind of selfish, right? It doesn't ask all that much of him except to suffer, and then it would allow him to die with a clean conscience. It's like Sala told him in his first chapter, too much light can blind the eyes, and fire burns. Living is harder, and that's what Davos is going to be forced to do. You're right. And I think it's so interesting that Salador San is, you know, the voice of reason when by all appearances <laughs> he shouldn't be. I mean, he dresses like a pirate, talks like one as well, and also like dresses like a magician and speaks with that over-the-top style of the free cities. He's also a thief. And I love the bit of world building where he's lifted one of Illyrio's chairs. No, this does not mean that Salador San is Illyrio Mopatis as a bad theory had it about two years ago. But Salador San is trying his best to save Davos's life and be a friend to him. And I have to agree that Davos is not returning the favor. Again, George continues the theme that appearances don't necessitate truth. An external beauty or established norms of what a man or woman should look like, those things also don't reflect internal beauty and what men and women should do in this life. Overall, though, this is the problem with fanaticism. It sweeps aside all reason to drive towards the end state of the person holding the belief. Regardless, it's a nice trope inversion to have Salad Sam, the most ridiculously looking person, sounding the most sane amidst all of these somber, serious-looking people who are acting fucking ridiculous. But Salador San isn't the only blast from the past Davos meets in this chapter. We still have Axel Florent and a boy who reminds Davos of the Shades of Robert, and troublingly, reminds Davos of Renly too. So like I said earlier, Dragonstone was never exactly a fun place to hang out, but as Davos walks up to the castle, he sees that the island is more bleak and barren than ever. The people have vanished. The children at play he remembers have been replaced by rats. When Davos keels over coughing in the street, no one helps him. Most of the houses bear signs of mourning. It's like walking through a graveyard. They all rose and fell with Stannis, and this is their collective tomb. It shows us that the Baratheon cause is at a desperate dead end. Davos needs to be the spark to rekindle the fire. 
but it also reflects his own conflicts. Davos is being reminded that many more people die than just his own sons. It isn't all about him and his mission from God. As we go through this book, the solitary man from his rock will open himself back up to considering humanity, what responsibilities he might have if he's not doomed to die here. Carrying on means reckoning with those you've lost, rather than just rushing to join them. We see that again at the castle gate. The men Davos knew there all died in the battle, so he's a stranger here now. He remembers little details about all of the men who used to hold this gate, how this guy looked with his scar, how this guy talked to the ladies. They're gone. All gone. Down with his sons to make a king in hell, he thinks. And that fits the dreadful imagery of Dragonstone perfectly. Stannis is now a king in hell, attended by ghosts, preparing to burn it all down around him. I mean, you get the sense that there's a real lack of talent left to Stannis on Dragonstone. Mm -hmm. And that starts to become real painfully apparent in this chapter. Because all those chivalric knights and lords of the Stormlands, Crownlands, and Narrow Sea died on the Blackwater or turned cloaked to Lannisters and Renly in the battle. As we'll find out in later Davos chapters, there are still a few good kingsmen about Dragonstone, but they are quite few and even farther between. The sense we get from this and successive Davos chapters is that this 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 ain't the real this ain't the A team anymore, guys. Hell, it's not even those narrow sea lords that we saw in the prologue in Davos one. It's mostly incompetence like Guy the Crossbowman, or of course, our friendly family of Florence. Yep, Davos's friends have been replaced by the Florence, whose men escort Davos not to Stannis in the Stone Drum but to Aegon's Garden. This is the only time we go to Aegon's Garden. It's basically the only nice part of Dragonstone. It's totally <laughs> unlike the rest of the castle. All the, the gloom and the gargoyles replaced by the pleasant smell of pine trees, the sight of wild roses and cranberries. Whoa, actual colors on Dragonstone. I didn't know that was allowed. If Dragonstone represents Stannis, if the island kind of stands in for the hard man with fiery wrath building up inside him, then Aegon's Garden, this one nice place, is what's left of Stannis' heart. So naturally, this is where Shireen hangs out, because she's the one good innocent thing in Stannis' life, doomed to be sacrificed as the one he loves the most. While everyone else on the island mourns and schemes, she's just playing, enjoying the present moment like Danny on her ships. She's chasing around Patchface. Davos compared himself to Patchface earlier in the chapter, realizing that they'd both been spat up by the sea, and that's not exactly, you know, that's not a great model for him to follow. <laughs> this is what being the voice of God actually looks like. It drove Patchface mad. Is this the kind of prophet that Davos wants to be? He thinks he was sent here to kill Melisandre, but he's wrong. And I love how George writes this. Davos's true mission literally runs right into him. Edric Storm comes barreling into the story after being set up all through Clash of Kings. And I think he's written very well. I think he's, he's a realistic kid, I think. He's both arrogant and kind. He knocks Davos down and he says, Hey, you shouldn't get in my way while I'm running. Uh-oh, we think. Is this kid another Joffrey? But when Davos starts coughing, Edric quickly changes his tune. He grabs Davos by the shoulder. He says, Are you okay? Should I get the maester? Joffrey would never do that. Like a lot of 12 to 13-year-olds, Edric is desperate to prove himself mature. He's playing games, he says, but only because Shireen likes them. Edric himself thinks they're childish, and he's not a child, no, no. But he is, and he still has a child's perspective on the world. He thinks Davos can't be a knight at first because he doesn't look the part. When he learns Davos' name, then Edric gets all excited because he's heard the stories about the Onion Knight. 
Like Sansa in the first book, Edric's head is in the songs. He draws himself tall. He draws himself up tall to introduce himself like a character out of those songs. I'm King Robert's son. A totally unnecessary introduction, as Davos thinks, because other than his florent ears from his mom, Edric looks identical to his father. It's spooky. He could be young Robert, which is exactly how Renly was described. And Davos makes that connection in this scene. This kid is Robert and Renly reborn. And George sets up that dynamic perfectly, even without Stannis himself being present. Edric clearly worships his father, who taught him to fight, and he says that Robert would never have cut off Davos' fingers. Stannis is the outsider, the exception. Despite being a bastard, Edric seems more in line with the standard Baratheon image. Now that's not to say the Baratheon image lines up with reality. It's a heartbreaking detail that Edric says Robert visited him almost every year. That's how much attention Robert gave his kid. Stannis knows all too well what it's like to be starved of Robert's love. He ran in the opposite direction with it. He stopped hero-worshipping Robert at some point and devoted himself to resentment and alienation. The heart on fire. Edric's similarity to Robert and Renly makes Davos real nervous. Like, he just goes, uh-oh, as soon as he figures this out. <laughs> George doesn't tell us why, but I think it's pretty clear. Look what happened to Renly. How Stan is going to feel about his nephew, a living, breathing reminder of the brothers everyone preferred to him. This is Davos's mission, to protect this sweet, charming kid from Melisandre, who gradually convinces Stannis to sacrifice Edric to R'hllor. That fits the theme of mercy in Davos's story, as well as his guilt over his sons. I failed to save them. They're gone. There's nothing I can do about it, but I will not fail to save Edric Storm. That will be his new foundation, not killing Melisandre, which it turns out he can't do anyway. <laughs> Axel Florent arrives to put Davos under arrest for pre-crime. It's a real shock at the end of a slow, moody chapter. Suddenly the plot shows up. Davos's quest looks more foolish than ever. Unlike in the show, he didn't even get as far as Melisandre. He was caught before he ever made the attempt. It's one more setback in a chapter full of them. Basically proof that Sala was right. This isn't who Davos is, who he should be. The rest of his chapters in this book will find him reaching a different conclusion. Davos wasn't brought back to take lives, but to save them. Yeah, and I and I think, you know, here in this chapter, this is the end of Davos's religious quest. It ends with his arrest by Axel Florin. And and this was one of my rare criticisms of Davos's story in A Storm of Swords that really Davos doesn't reflect much on the faith of the seven and on the mother much afterwards. But Having read through Davos's chapters in A Storm of Swords in preparation for this episode, I, I want to do a little, just a little bit of a self-correction here, because there is a really cool line in Davos's final chapter in A Storm of Swords, The Storm of Swords, Davos 6. The mother never made me for tasks like this. The task in this case was in confessing to Stannis that he saved Edric and sent him away from Stannis and Melisandre and away from the flames. What I love about that line and the renewed context is that Davos was so sure that his task here in this chapter, Davos 2, was to do a bit of murder. But saving a bastard boy and confessing his crime to Stannis, that wasn't a task he was made for by the mother, or so he believes. Yet the end of his story in A Storm of Swords shows us that Davos's true purpose, like you were saying, was to save lives, not take them. And that comes from Davos himself. It comes from internally from him. It's not some divine mission that he's received from the gods. 
what is one bastard boy against a kingdom and Davos's recognition that the answer is everything doesn't take divine intervention. That comes from within for Davos, and it's something that's a thrilling aspect of storytelling for Davos' story. But Davos will have to go a long, long way to get there. And it's a journey that I'm excited to keep undertaking with you, sir. Me too, but I can't wait to, to get to later Davos chapters. As good as this one is, they just keep getting better from here. So it shifted into foreshadowing and groundwork. The big one I think that everyone notices when they come back on reread is that Patchface sees the Red Wedding coming. He stops, he sees Davos, and he says, as, as, you, as you sang so well earlier, fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom. Aye, aye, aye. And that's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty blunt once you have read The Red Wedding that, you know, that uh, you have king's blood there with Rob, you have fool's blood with, with Aegon uh, Jingle Bell. Chains for the guests, those northerners who survived, chains for the bridegroom being Edmure. Um, but it's still, I just think it's a, it's not just an info dump. It's, it's, it's really kind of haunting the way he just associates all the blood together, like the, the violent blood with, with Rosalind's maiden's blood. And then he kind of ties those together. It's, it's eerie, it's uncomfortable, and it gets you the, it gets you the sense of what it's like being patch-faced, that he just kind of has to make those associations in his brain as the images flash across his eyes. It's, like I was saying, it's not a, not fun being a prophet. It's not something Davo should want. You're right about it not being fun to be to be patch face in, in this chapter, patch face at any point in time in his life. But I, but I, I do really enjoy that dynamic, and I'm still very curious about how patch face gained this ability to see events from the future. Um, there, there's that that to me remains a, a bit of a mystery. We did talk a bit about that in uh, in the prologue, our prologue chapter. If you go back to episode I think 92 or so. But but it's 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 fascinating that he continues to have this really clear vision uh, of the future, and that continues on into a dance with dragons and throughout a storm of swords. And uh, second bit of foreshadowing is that this is not the last time that everyone assumes that Davos is dead. If you go, if you remember from a feast for crows and a dance with dragons, Wyman Manderley claims to have executed the Onion Knight while secretly cutting a deal with him to retrieve Rickon Stark from Skegos. So this is one of those really fun things that came from the fact that George split a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons and that Davos is reported arrested uh, in, in Cersei's fourth or fifth chapter. I think it's her fourth chapter in a Feast for Crows. And then in her fifth chapter, um, she, he's reported dead after Cersei tells Wyman Manderly to execute Davos. But yeah, Davos is, everyone thinks that Davos is dead, but no, Davos keeps turning up alive. It's like a bad penny. He keeps coming back. Onions float, as he says. And yeah, that's interesting that, mm -hmm. that uh, George kind of has that, that repeated beat. Davos just barely surviving. And uh, only the Manderleys and uh, Robert Glover know he's alive at this point. And even they, you know, maybe they'll lose touch with him and think, oh, he probably died going off the Skagos if they don't hear from him for a while, you know. We're, we're the only ones who get every beat of the Davos journey. And uh, I wonder if it's uh, possible that, because Stannis thinks he's dead too in Dance. He falls mm -hmm. for it. So he might, you know, we might get to the climax of the Stannis plot without him ever learning the truth, which that might uh, tie into the burning of Shireen. We'll see. <laughs> So Sala uh, complains a lot here in this chapter about not getting paid, and that pays off, so to speak, in A Dance with Dragons, when he, he abandons Davos and the sisters. And I was definitely surprised by that when I first read Dance, but coming back on Reread, it's like, man, it was never a question of if Sala was going to abandon Stannis, it's when. <laughs> Do you think that's fair to say? 
I, absolutely fair to say. And the, the irony, of course, is that Salvador San abandons Stannis the moment when Stannis can actually start to pay him since he receives the loan from the Iron Bank. Right. Isn't that funny? Yeah. If he just just stuck around a little longer, he, he might have gotten his money. I definitely think that's that's deliberate on George's part. So Devis references how old Iron can kill demons. And I think that might be a reference to how either Obsidian or Valyrian Steel can kill the others. It's something that we are going to find out when uh, when Samo is reading the Jade Compendium and some of the scrolls in the Castle Black Library, and he runs across stories of how, you know, if you have a certain sword, you can potentially kill the others. And we do see a version of that in in Samuel's. Well, we don't see a version of it. We see that in Samuel's first chapter in A Storm of Swords, where he does kill a White Walker with a, an obsidian steel blade that uh, obsidian steel with an obsidian blade that uh, that John gave him from the cache that was left. Uh, by, uh, by persons unknown at the Fist of the First Men. And then, of course, Valyrian Steel might be the method that you could kill others. Although, again, some of, some of the history is kind of weird to me and, and intentionally ambiguous because did Valyrian Steel exist when the first Long Night happened back in the day? Probably not. But I think probably that references Obsidian rather than, than Valyrian Steel. Agreed there. And I think we might... Davos might uh, learn a little bit more about this when he goes to Skagos and maybe finds uh, some more obsidian there. So this... Uh, this uh perception of his might come up again but yeah it's like you know it's like the there's a there's a vague memory of the others in westeros but it's eight thousand years so a lot of it's gotten filtered down some of it's not entirely accurate or just kind of uh, a, a composite you know i think you, you see that going on there one final bit of uh, foreshadowing is that you uh, edric sets up here that he receives a lot of gifts from robert that's what he tells davos stan slater tells davos that yeah no robert never picked out those gifts that, that was Varus. <laughs> Which is an interesting little thing to talk about. Maybe we can do in a later episode about why Varus might be doing that. But it is, I think, just so representative of the Baratheons as a family that Robert has the reputation of being the, the super generous one. But um, uh, I think it was Tyrion said, like, Robert is a very casually, unthinkingly generous man. So it's like, he, you know, he didn't mm-hmm. go out of his way to be nice to Edric, and Edric thinks he does. And that's so perfect because Stannis is like, yeah, I knew the real Robert. Your dad sucked, kid. I knew him. He sucked. <laughs> And that's, yeah, that's that's perfectly Stannis. And that's like, that's true, but like the least helpful thing to bring up right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think like George also said, you know, about Storms and why Robert gave it to Renly as opposed to, to Stannis. He said it's it's a form of Robert Baratheon's careless generosity. Right. yep. And and I think that's that's the case here. Although, I mean, it's, it's nice that Robert ostensibly gives... Uh, Edric Storm a, a gift every year. But again, we find out that's actually Varas. And yeah, I, I am eager to talk more about that with you because I think that could have some potential portents down the road for the potential of Edric Storm reappearing in the story, potentially in the Winds of Winter. I, I think, you know, Robert is... What I, what I love most about Robert Baratheon's story after his death is that the more we find out about him, the less we like him. Like in, in A Game of Thrones, he's kind of melancholy and jolly and yeah he does do some bad shit like slapping cersei or, or like you know in ned's presence and yelling at his wife but the every single the more we find out about him and the successive stories from different point of view characters you're more like okay this guy actually wasn't a good dude after all like he actually seems less more villainous the farther we get in his story and i think that's an interesting and fun dynamic that george plays with in uh successive books of a song of ice and fire after a game of thrones that's something we talk a lot about in our Patreon episode on Robert Baratheon, so you can check that out at uh, patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where we get into a lot of how Robert works as a character when he's on page, and even kind of more so as he grows and changes when you learn more about him after he's dead. So, shifting into our uh, theory and discussion portion of this episode, there's a little kind of uh, interesting thread that 
doesn't get picked up on explicitly, but is kind of hinted at later and I find interesting. Davos wonders in this chapter why he's been sent to Aegon's Garden. Why have, why have they brought me here to wait specifically? And then Axel arrests him and then we kind of move on. But Stannis will later claim that Melisandre set this up. That Melisandre wanted Davos brought to Aegon's Garden specifically so he would meet Edric Storm. And I think that's interesting. And I wondered if he had any just kind of speculation on why that might be. Because it's it's that's not intuitive given that how you know Melisandre wants to burn <laughs> Edric Storm and is later pissed off when Davos saves him. But she wants this meeting to happen. Why do you, Why do you think that might be? Maybe it's because Edric Storm is supposed to be like the stand-in for Renly and Robert and Davos is supposed to see this kid and be like, oh God, here we go again. There's another Robert slash Renly figure. And maybe he was supposed to get annoyed by this kid too. Maybe he was supposed to share <laughs> Stannis's perspective, right? About Robert and Renly be like, oh, this kid is such a, you know, a piece of shit. But then you realize that he's, he's just a kid and he actually has mostly good qualities to him. This is a part of when you, when, when I was reading the, the document, when we were doing this, these, uh, we were setting this, this episode up. I was, I, I'm, really kind of unsure uh, in totality why Melisandre wanted Davos to meet Edric Storm here. And I'm curious what you think is the reason why Melisandre wanted to meet, wanted Davos to meet Edric here in this chapter. Well, it's interesting that later on in the book, we learn that the Florence wanted to burn Davos for the crime of trying to kill Melisandre and Melisandre stopped them. And Stannis says the reason why is because Melisandre knows that Davos is a friend to Stannis. And so I, w- I wonder what might have happened is that Melisandre saw something in the flames that suggested that Davos will be helpful to Stannis. Like maybe she saw, you know, Davos speaking to Stannis and then Stannis sailing north. And maybe she maybe she made a connection that Davos is going to actually help me convince Stannis about Edric Storm. Hmm. That would require her not understanding Davos very well, certainly. But I think because when we mean in Davos' next chapter, Melisandre isn't just telling Davos, shut up or I'll burn you. She's really trying to convince him <laughs> that she's on the right path. And so part of me wonders whether Melisandre is like, this is the only other person Stannis listens to. His support is sincere. So maybe, and at this point, Stannis is uh, resisting her regarding Edric Storm. So maybe Melisandre genuinely thinks she can get Davos on her side and try to get him to, to make her kind of arguments. And like, you know, I think Melisandre... Uh, uh, confuses Davos like he doesn't really have a counter to her argument so maybe 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 that's what she's going for maybe Melisandre thinks that even if I can't convert Davos to R'hllor overall I can get him on on my side for this mission and that's what makes it so satisfying of course when he he goes he has a complete end run around her and uh, frees Edric Storm and she has that moment where she, her eyes are just panicking because she didn't see it coming and so, I mean, that's, I think, Melisandre in a nutshell. So I think, she, I think she, she understands that Davos is helpful to Stannis, but she just doesn't understand how or why. And that's, that's going to make that payoff great. I think it is, is a really good payoff. And again, this portion of the story where we kind of change gears and we focus on the salvation of Edric Storm is one of the most thrilling and, and interesting thematic dy- dynamics in, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire and really in, in Davos' story in, in A Storm of Swords. But I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Davos 2. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thank you to those of you who watched our live stream. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. 
Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get early access, bonus episodes, merch, a whole lot of great stuff over there. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is brendabfish.substack.com. We want to shout and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself was renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Merybald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas, the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bolin de Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Foray Pies. Septon Merrifold Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Four City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve. Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much to all our, all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Yeah, thank you folks so much for your support. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 2, in which there is far too much horseshit about in this chapter, isn't there? That's also a fun chapter like this one that's all just about kind of like setbacks and failures and things like immediately swerving and not going how they're supposed to. That's a lot of these kind of these these number, these second chapters in the Storm of Swords is kind of a character trying to navigate intrigue after things changed uh, uh, at the start of the book. So that's 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 a that's a fun little chapter. We'll enjoy it. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. Thank you to all the folks who watched us for a live cast. We'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords, Jamie Two.